0: I'm convinced that if we could get eyes fixed on Jesus and cut out all the falderall in the church, it would revolutionize our own personal lives, and I think it would revolutionize the church. It would give a basis on which the Spirit of God could move. That's what we hear from Dr. J. Vernon McGee today in this Never Before Heard Sunday sermon, The Time and Place of Christ's Birth Prophesied. Welcome to Through the Bible. I'm Steve Schwetz, and I'm so glad that you've hopped aboard the Bible bus for the last message in our series, Unusual Prophecies Pointing to the Birth of Christ. So grab your Bible, find your seat, and let's pray as we give this time to the Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time to gather around your word together. Lord, as we study, would you give us a sense of expectancy and urgency for the beautiful day that we will see Jesus face to face? We ask that you would stir faith in our hearts, Lord, as we hear these words about his return for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Here's the Sunday Sermon on Through the Bible with Dr. J. Vernon McGee.
1: We tonight are going to conclude the series, the unusual, unnoticed prophecies in the Old Testament that pointed to the birth of Christ. And we attempted to show that God blazed a trail down through history in such a definite way that when the Lord Jesus Christ came, they should have known. He made it very clear that he'd be born of a woman. That is, that very unusual thing that God would take upon himself, human flesh, and that the woman would be the instrument. Then he made it clear after that that he was following a line You find that that line begins immediately, and it leads to Abraham, from Abraham down through Isaac and Jacob, and then Jacob's 12 sons. You wonder which son will the line will come through. We're told at the deathbed statement of old Jacob that it would be Judah, and then we can follow that line right on down until God takes this little boy that was tending sheep and he made him his king. And he also said to him, from this line, from you, there will come the Messiah, there will come the Deliverer, there will come the one that will restore to this earth that which Adam lost. And that line now is very well established. Then we saw that last time that there was something very, actually, very wonderful added, and that was that he was to be virgin born. And that made it very clear that in the line of David, it just couldn't be anyone in the line. It had to be one who would be virgin born. Now tonight, we're going to see two or three things. We're going to see, first of all, that God actually established the time. That is, when I say time, I do not mean date. But he did establish the time in which he was to come. He also told the plates that he would be born. Now, may I say to you that you can't add much more than that. In other words, there was enough points of identification that they should have known him when he came. Now the question arises, why didn't they know him? Why didn't they recognize him? These people who had the scriptures, they are in the same position that the church is in today. And what is that? A state actually of unbelief. And this is what I mean. Did you know that the majority of the church today has rejected the second coming of Christ? They say today it's nonsense. He's not coming at all again. And they have absolutely turned aside from that. So that, may I say that if he did put in his appearance and would come in a manner that would be like he came before, do you think that the world would accept him? Of course they would. They are not looking for him to come again at all. And Peter says that in the last days, why, there are going to arise many that are going to say, where's the sign of his coming? We just don't believe it. So that actually today the church is in a state of unbelief relative to the second coming of Christ. Now you can see that was actually the position of the Jews. They had the... Old Testament, but they just simply didn't believe it. I am amazed that they knew it as well as they knew it. You remember, as we're going to see tonight, they knew the place he was to be born, but they were not interested in going with the wise men to see just what had really happened down there. They didn't believe. That's the reason that they didn't go. If they had thought the Messiah was being born down there in Bethlehem, why, they would have gone, but you could never have convinced them that in that stable, in that cave, that that little baby is to be the one that's to be the savior of the world. They just didn't believe it. And today, the world has almost totally rejected the concept that the Lord Jesus is coming uh, again. And yet, we're going to see something now very strange. I'm not going to turn to this chapter in Daniel, and labor the point. But in the 70 weeks of Daniel, in verse 26, and I would like to lift that out, and we're told here, after three score and two weeks, that is 62 weeks, shall Messiah be cut off, and not for himself, and the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and so on. Now, after 62 weeks, the Messiah is to be cut off. Sir Robert Anderson, in his book, The Coming Prince, has worked out the time schedule. From the first of the month, Nisan, to the 10th of Nisan, April of 6, A.D. 32, are 173,880 days. Dividing them according to the Jewish year of 360 days, he arrives at 483 years, 69 sevens. On this day, Jesus rode into Jerusalem offering himself for the first time publicly and officially as the Messiah. Now, may I say that I've only given you the sketch, and I don't want to go into the ramifications of all of the mathematics of this, because Sir Robert Anderson was head of Scotland Yard in London for years. He was a wonderful Christian. He wrote, by the way, several very excellent books. And one of them, The Coming Prince, he worked out the mathematics of it so that the Lord Jesus rode into Jerusalem at the triumphal entry at that very moment, if you please, that Daniel had said he'd come. Now, the Jew knew that he could never present himself as the Messiah until he was at least 30 years of age. That means that knowing this prophecy concerning the times, I do not say that they should have been down at Bethlehem waiting outside of the inn for news of his birth, but they should have known that it would be in that particular period that he would be born, that it would not be a thousand years later, and it couldn't be a hundred years before but it would fit into God's program for him to be born in that particular time. And therefore, when these wise men appeared out of the east, and they certainly alerted old Herod, they should have alerted these scribes. And they should have said, Sure, our scripture not only tells where he is to be born, but it gives us some conception of when He's to be born. And therefore, they should have been interested to go down to at least to check it out to see about this baby that was born in Bethlehem. But as far as the record is concerned, they did not lift one finger and they did not take one step toward Bethlehem. Why? They did not believe it at all. Now, may I say to you that there was, though, among the Jewish people a note of expectancy among the common people, but not among these religious rulers. And the very interesting thing I have before me now, Gregory's very wonderful little book, The Key to the Gospels, or Why Four Gospels. And I want to read you something. This has always been interesting to me, that there was a like expectancy throughout the heathen world of some deliverer or ruler to come forth from Judea is equally clear. It was thus, that the wise men came at the right hour inquiring at Jerusalem after the newborn king of the Jews. Now, will you notice this? Suetonius relates that an ancient and definite expectation had spread throughout the East that a ruler of the world would at about that time arise in Judea. Tacitus, and he is the Roman uh, historian, he makes a similar statement. Schlegel mentions that the Buddhist missionaries traveling to China met Chinese sages going to seek the Messiah about 33 AD. There had spread throughout the world in that day an expectancy. They couldn't always pin it down. They didn't have the scripture, but there was an expectancy And the Roman Empire at that time was at its lowest ebb as far as morals are concerned. Lawlessness abounded. And throughout the pagan, heathen world, there seemed to be no hope. Slavery had bound men's souls even. And in spite of all that, there was an expectancy that there was coming to this earth a deliverer. And they were looking for a deliverer to come. And then John the Baptist made that memorable announcement. I am the forerunner. I'm throwing up a highway. He's coming after me. He'll be coming along just a little later now. And this is the one that the Old Testament spoke of. This is the one that is the Savior of the world. This is the one that is to be the ruler of this earth. So that, if you please, there should, among these people, have been more of a concern. I believe, frankly, that at his coming again, that this hope, we call the blessed hope, will practically have died out as far as the church is concerned. You remember he made this statement, when the Son of Man cometh, will he find the faith upon the earth. Now the word there and the way the Greek words it, the Greek had a way of arranging a sentence and asking a question and getting either an affirmative or negative answer. And in this question, when the Son of Man cometh, will he find faith on the earth? And the answer is no. He'll not find the faith on the earth. And I think today that we're seeing the apostasy increase by leaps and bounds in this earth. Frankly, I'm amazed at what I've seen in my lifetime. Now, from the very beginning of my ministry, I've preached that the apostasy was coming. But I want to be very candid with you tonight. Did you know that I never thought I'd see it? I never thought I'd see a movement in seminaries that God's dead. In Europe today, I am told that there is not a seminary, there is not a reputable theologian in Europe that believes in the inspiration of the Scriptures. And did you know that in this country today that you probably can put on the fingers of one hand the seminaries? that are teaching the inspiration of the scriptures. We are today almost in total apostasy. And there is a repudiation of all of these precious truths. I think that we're moving into that orbit which could bring him back to this earth to take his church out at any time. There'll be a few. There were a few looking for him before. That was Anna. That was Simeon. There were others that were looking for him to come the wise men and the shepherd, but they were few, and they'll be very few when he takes the church out. I'm convinced of that. Now, may I say that we're given in this prophecy concerning the time, not date, but the time in which he was to be born. It was in that particular period of time. Now, there is another remarkable prophecy. It's the one though, that's familiar. I certainly couldn't say tonight that here is a prophecy we're looking at that's Unusual because it's unfamiliar because this is probably one of the most familiar prophecies. It's like the one we had concerning the virgin birth. This one is the remarkable prophecy that is because it's familiar. Now I'm turning to Micah, the fifth chapter, verse 2. But thou, Bethlehem, Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that's to be ruler in Israel whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Now, frankly, I used to be disturbed by the statement out of the thousands of Judah. That's a whole lot of places. And Judah's not the biggest place in the world. But if you fly over that land by plane, you'll see what he means. A town in that day, as today, is actually what we call the crossroads. Can you remember when you were a boy or girl and some of you here tonight look like you're as old as I am. And can you remember when you went down to the crossroads? There'd be just a couple stores there. I've lived in many little towns. Every five miles you have that kind of a situation. And even today in that land, you find one crossroad after another. In fact, you can be on one hill. You look right over it. There's another little place. Just crossroads. I bet there are not 20 people live there. Another one there. There were thousands of places in Judah, that he could be born. But Bethlehem is chosen. Now, wait just a minute. I'm prepared to admit that the remarkable thing about this prophecy is not that Bethlehem was chosen as the place. After all, that's David's town. That's the place where he lived. That's the place he was born. You would expect that if you'd pick any place for the Messiah to come, and since he's in the line of David... He'll be born in Bethlehem. Now, that's not remarkable that the prophet picked that place out. What is it that's remarkable? The remarkable thing is that he was born there. How could he be born in Bethlehem? How could he? Look at the situation. To begin with, after this prophecy was given, Micah was contemporary with Isaiah, lived about 700 years. B.C. 700 years before he comes, Micah says, if you want to know where to look for him, don't look for him in Hebron. He won't be there. Don't look for him up at Nazareth to be born there. He won't be born there. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. All right. Nebuchadnezzar comes. He destroys that land destroys Jerusalem. These people are carried away captive and the royal house goes into captivity so that they never did return as a royal house. We saw last time Isaiah was very careful. He says, out of Jesse shall come a stem and a root, not out of David, because when he comes, you'll be back to the peasant. You'll be back to Jesse with just a farmer. Joseph was a carpenter. Mary was just a maiden from Nazareth. You'll be back among the peasants when he comes. It's a stem and a rod out of Jesse, if you please. Now, all those years go by. The royal family is pretty well scattered. And when they finally return, they don't go back to the hometown. They're not permitted to, to begin with. That land, the Samaritans were there. They had the same problem then that they're having today. They couldn't get their land back like it was before. So what happens? This family, of which both Joseph and Mary were members, they go up to Nazareth. They actually go to the north and not to the south. Bethlehem is south of Jerusalem, and Nazareth is north. Now, here is the royal family living in Nazareth. They're now peasants. No longer any claim to the throne whatsoever. Now the time comes for him to be born. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of the woman, born under the law. Now he's to come. But well, wait a minute, Lord. Mary's up yonder Nazareth, and that's where the angel appeared to her. Did the angel tell her to, Mary, you've got to get down to Bethlehem? He didn't say anything about it. Never mention that. But Micah says he's to be born in Bethlehem. It's in Bethlehem that he's to be born. And Mary, if you don't get down there to Bethlehem, you're sure going to make Micah look very funny. You will have to get down there. Now, if you had spoken to Mary and told her to be sure and buy a ticket down to Bethlehem and get down there, she would have told you. I have no notion of going to Bethlehem at all. But you see, God is moving. And way over yonder in Rome, in the Forum, I can see Caesar Augustus walking down with his military advisors and his political economists. He had them from the different universities there with him. And he went down to his ranch in South Italy. And he said to the fellows, he says, Now we've got to raise more money. We're carrying on a war up here in Europe, and we need money. And one of the economists says, the only thing to do is to tax the people. That's the way you raise money. You know, there's nothing new today under the sun. These smart economists today, you know their advice today is tax the people. Well, that's what they did back in Caesar Augustus' day. And so they said to him, now Caesar Augustus, You must sign a tax bill at that the whole Roman Empire is to be taxed that you can raise money for your military expedition. He says, I'll do it. And so they bring him the tax bill and he signs it. It goes into law. And out through the Roman Empire go the riders and the couriers and the ships carrying the word that every man must go to his own city to be enrolled. Because he's going to be taxed. Same old story, isn't it? He's got to be taxed. So what happens is Mary and Joseph happen to belong to the family of David. Both of them do. They both have got to go down and be enrolled. But something had happened. The angel had appeared to Mary and told her that she is to have a child. And Joseph said, it's going to be pretty difficult to get married down there. But the angel of the Lord said, that's where you are to go. And so he goes down. And had you been over in Rome, know what we know tonight, and you had looked over the shoulder of Caesar Augustus and said to him, did you know that you are nothing in the world but a puppet in the hands of Almighty God? That when you sign that tax bill that you are going to move a woman down to Bethlehem, in order that a prophecy 700 years old might be fulfilled. No, you know, Caesar Augustus turned around and laughed. She said, you are without doubt the biggest fanatic that I've ever heard of. You must be a religious fanatic to believe a thing like that. Do you know what I'm doing? I'm no puppet in the hand of God. I need taxes. I need money. And I'm signing a tax bill that the world might be taxed that the coffers might be filled. Fine. But you're sure going to fulfill promise. Then we see Mary and Joseph making their way down. And friends, that was a hard trip in that day. That wasn't like taking a jet, you see, across the country. That little donkey and that terrain from Nazareth down to Bethlehem, it's rugged. Uphill, downhill, through the valleys. And there they go. And they get down to Bethlehem just in time. And there's no room for them in the inn. Thank God for that. And then there's a stable back there. And frankly, well, had to go to the inn, they wouldn't have had a private room. And as a result, well, what would have happened is that inn had one big public room. And what you do is buy a little space to put your own pallet down. And Jesus would have been born before a leering crude crowd had to been rooming in. God's ranging it all. Uh, clean straw is better than an unclean crowd any day. And so back there in this private place, but what a place he's born. This little baby is born. And prophecies fulfilled that he's to be born in Bethlehem. May I say to you that the fact that the prophecy said Bethlehem is not remarkable, the fact that he was born there is remarkable. Under normal circumstances, it could never have happened. It never would have happened under the circumstances that existed in that day, except that God was overriding and overruling everything in this world. May I say that that has a tremendous lesson for us today. As you look about Los Angeles, it does look like God is pretty much in the shadows. And if you go to Washington, it doesn't look like he's making many decisions there. And if you go to the United Nations, it doesn't look like God is very busy today. But I believe that tonight, if you and I could see what heaven is doing tonight, we'd absolutely be startled. We'd be amazed. We'd be thrilled to know what God's doing right now in this world, moving the machinery of the world to accomplish His purpose. And you know that's a great comfort today. It ought to be a great comfort to a child of God to know today that God is still on the throne. And He still orders things. He's still arranging things. Emerson said, Things are in the saddle, and they ride mankind. Emerson is wrong on many things, and he's wrong there. Things are not in the saddle today. God's in the saddle. You remember the psalmist says he makes the wrath of man to praise him and the wrath of man that won't praise him? It's interesting. He'll put it around him like a belt, and he won't even let it happen. Even the wrath of man has to praise God today. That's amazing in this world in which we live, and it's a great comfort to go through this world today to know that God is still on the throne. Now, I don't want to be irreverent, but frankly, if I were God, I'd move in on this thing and let them know who I was, wouldn't you? I'd say, I hear you've forgotten all about me. But the interesting thing is, God can afford to wait. You see, he has eternity ahead of him. You move back to the 19th century, that Victorian period. And I've been reading something of the history of that recently. Mighty ideas they had then. And the world as it was in that day. A stuffy world it was. And they thought it was the world. And somebody said, Well, why didn't God move in on that? Did you know that He didn't have to? You know what happened? It took about 50 years and that whole thing collapsed and disappeared. He's moving. Time's going to move everything that's on the stage right now in the world. will move it all off in 50 years. May I say to you, God today is moving in the affairs of the world. So when Caesar Augustus, one of the greatest, by the way, of the Caesars, he actually was not a Caesar. His name was Octavius. He was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. And he took the name of Caesar... Because that was a name that meant something. And he was the adopted son of the great Julius Caesar. And Augustus was his title. You remember that the Senate wanted to confer on him a title. And they suggested to him king. He didn't like it. It wasn't big enough. They suggested to him emperor, imperator. He said nothing to it. He didn't like it. They actually suggested to him dictator. That's something for... Some of these fellas over there today to think over. Oh, well, he didn't like Dictator. It wasn't big enough for him. So they came up with the idea of Augustus. And you know, the word Augustus carries with it a religious connotation. It actually means one that you worship. And Caesar Augustus signed a tax bill, a man that he himself declared he was God. But history has demonstrated that he wasn't anything in the world but a little puppet in the hands of Almighty God accomplishing his purpose in bringing the Messiah into the world. And I say to you tonight that God today is moving in the affairs of this world. I have one more prophecy, and then we're through tonight. Isaiah 61, 1 and 3. And the reason that I turn to this prophecy It's a fitting conclusion because you will find that all the prophets did this. There's no exception to this. All of the prophets spoke of the first coming and the second coming of Christ. And Peter says that they saw the sufferings and the glory that should follow, and they never made the distinction between the two. The prophets did not see. Peter says... They desired to look into these things because it looked very funny to see a Messiah that's going to die on a cross, and Isaiah spoke of that, and at the same time, one that's going to rule on this earth. How can it be both? And it was both. Well, here is a prophecy that combines both, and the Lord Jesus Christ gives us the interpretation of this that shows his first coming and his second coming in this prophecy in Isaiah 61. Now, will you listen to this? The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. Now this is a remarkable prophecy, but it's a strange prophecy, as you can see. Here is one that talks about that he's going to bind up the brokenhearted, that he's going to preach good tidings. And then it says here, he's going to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and then immediately he says, and the day of vengeance of our God. Now, how can you have both of those? How can he be on the one hand bringing liberty and bringing the blessing to the earth and at the same time The vengeance of God is being wrought. Now, how can both of those be true? The Lord Jesus himself gave us the interpretation. Well, look with us at Luke, the fourth chapter. And to me, this is one of the most remarkable interpretations of Scripture that we have. And this is the last time that the Lord Jesus spoke in in his own hometown of Nazareth, for that's where he was brought up. I'm going to begin reading at verse 16 of the fourth chapter of Luke. Now, will you listen to this? And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. Now, the place that was written was... Isaiah 61, where I just read. Because, listen, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, notice, he closed the book. And I say, wait a minute, wait a minute. What do you mean close in the book there? You did not even finish the sentence. In the Hebrew, all you have there is a "wow," and that means and. That means that more is to come. But that and is already 1,900 years old. It's been that long. Because that which he quoted, now notice what he said. And he closed the book. He gave it again to the minister and he sat down and the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. Listen to him. And he began to say unto them, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Now this is remarkable, friends. What he's saying to them is this. Here in his hometown where he's been brought up and they're going to say in just a moment, isn't this the son of Joseph? What's he talking like this for? He says to them, as he reads what we call Isaiah 61, they didn't have the markings in that day like that, but that's the place that he found. And he said, the Spirit of the Lord's on me. I'm called to do this thing. I have come to bring deliverance. I'm the Messiah. And they said, you mean you're the one? He said, this day is this scripture. Fulfilled in your ears. It's fulfilled right up to this end. Well, why didn't you keep reading? Well, the reason that he didn't keep reading, if you go back to Isaiah 61, and the day of vengeance of our God. That day has not come. And that'll come when he comes a second time to the earth to put down unrighteousness. You see where he stopped? Isaiah put both comings together. And he didn't even divide them with a period. He just bunched them together and our Lord came along and he said, you stop right here because up to this point, it's being fulfilled. This that's after this will have to wait for fulfillment and it's to be fulfilled when he comes the second time to this earth. Now, one or two things may arise in your mind. One is, it says, after the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn, who are mourning in that day when he comes? Why, his own. They're being persecuted here on earth. It's a great tribulation period. They're having a rough time. It's the day of vengeance of our God, and he's now come to comfort those that mourn. And wait a minute. That's not all. He came the first time to fulfill this. No time period given. 1900 years has gone by, and he's not back yet, but he's coming. And the, the rest of this is yet to be fulfilled. Does that tell you anything? It tells me that it's going to be literally fulfilled when he comes the second time. All of this that we've looked at in the way of prophecy has been literally fulfilled at his first coming. Everything that relates to his second coming, I interpret, will be literally fulfilled. That he will come to this earth in person. That his feet will touch the Mount of Olives. That he will establish his kingdom upon this earth. And... We are past now the Christmas season. The world's already forgot about it and they're off now for the New Year's Eve celebration. But Christian friend, may I say to you, just as he came the first time and these prophecies were fulfilled literally when he came, doesn't that tell you that when he comes the second time that these prophecies are to be fulfilled literally that have to do with his second coming to the earth? I do not see how you could interpret Scripture logically, in any other way. Now, these were given to these prophets like this. And as Peter says, they desired to look into them. They saw his sufferings and the glory that was to follow. And let me use my illustration. I don't know of a better one than this. Out back of us here are the lovely mountains. How sharp they were the other morning. How beautiful they were. And may I say that You look up first at Mount Wilson. Mount Wilson is about 6,000 feet high. And back of it is Mount Waterman. I'm told it's about 12,000 feet high. I don't know how high it is, but it's back of that. Now, you can stand out here, and on clear day, and you could the past few days, you can see Mount Wilson, and you can see Mount Waterman. And if you look at them from here, you know how they look? Just like they're together, just like that. Have you ever been up there? You come up to Mount Wilson and you come around to go to where they have all of the telescopes, ooh, you look down in a valley. And it must be 25 miles at the least over to Mount Waterman. You can't see that valley between. But it's there. But from here, you see two mountain peaks. When Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Micah and all of these prophets stood 700 years before he came, they saw two mountain peaks. They saw the mountain peak of his first coming, the mountain peak of his second coming, and they looked like they were right together. When our Lord got here, he took this prophecy to give us the key of interpretation, and he pulled it apart. And he said, this part is fulfilled today, right before you. This part is yet to be fulfilled. And there's a big valley between. It's already been 1,900 years. And I don't know how much longer it'll be. And again, may I say, I believe that we've come into that orbit of where you can expect God to do something definitely. I believe, frankly, a revival is possible today. But I have never in my ministry seen the church as dead as it is today. And I've had three months now of going around. I was just going over it. I have been in contact in the past three months with over a hundred churches. And I want to say there's deadness in the land today. But that doesn't rule out revival for the simple reason revival doesn't depend on the live church. A great many people think that you've got to have it. Revival depends on the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit. He's in charge. And if he wants a revival, he'll have it. If he doesn't want it, we won't have it. And I can tell you that. He's running the show. And I think we need to learn that. I get a little weary of some of these fellows saying, hey, well, if we do this, revival will come. What about the Holy Spirit? You think he's an office boy that you can tell him what to do? Do you think that you can do certain things saying, now look, you've got to come and move. He doesn't have to move. He never has. And he's moved at the most unlikely moments and times. I'm saying this in order to say revival is possible. I do not see it. But if revival does not come, I am confident that we can expect a direct action from Almighty God. I believe that he's going to break through in some way, either revival or today, because it looks to me like he's marking time. And I can't find many places in the history of this world where he spent much more time than he spent today in marking time. This century, he's done a lot of marking time. Did you know that? Two world wars, a worldwide depression, the spread of communism, and today a dead church. What do you think he's going to do? I think God's going to move in some way in direct action. I'm close with this tonight. In the day that he came, there was an expectancy among some people that there was coming a Messiah, a deliverer. But the world, the Roman world, is such. The civilized world of that day was absolutely dead as far as that's concerned. And the interesting thing is the religious world, right in Jerusalem, they were not looking for him at all. And in Bethlehem, right where he was born, they did not expect him at all. And today, we see that same situation about us at the present hour. They're not looking for it. But I believe that one of these days, he'll break through the blue. And it'll be at a time, he says, when you know not. I say this, that as God's people today, as we've come through a Christmas season, remembering that he has come, let's also remember he's going to come again. Let's remember he's going to come again. And let's be alert. Paul said to the Romans, he says, let us wake out of sleep. And when he said awake out of sleep, that means we're asleep. Because you can't wake out of anything but sleep. He says, let us wake out of sleep. Let's be alert. He's coming. And this is the hour, I think, for God's people to be alert and aware of the fact that he may come at any moment. And in view of that, It ought to draw us closer to Him personally. I want to emphasize the person of Christ. I'm convinced today that if we could get our affections fixed on Him and cut out all of this business today of fall de roll in the church and fix our attention upon the person of Jesus Christ, it would revolutionize our own personal lives. And I think it would revolutionize the church today, and it would give a basis on which the Spirit of God could move today. We need to see that in the year that lies ahead of us.
0: That's a great challenge for us this year. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus and then wait for the Spirit to move. If you'd like to spend a little more time listening to these messages on the unusual prophecies pointing to the birth of Christ, you can visit ttb.org forward slash Sunday Sermon where you can access the archive of all of our Sunday sermons. It's a great time to begin or to continue studying God's Word every day. And we want to welcome you to join us this week on the Bible bus as we travel through the important ground in Romans 14 and 15. To download our app, listen online, or see if your local station carries through the Bible, just visit ttb.org or call us at 1-800-65-BIBLE if we can help. Again, that's ttb.org or 1-800-65-BIBLE. Remember, you can also write to us at Bible Bus at ttb.org or by letter by writing to Box 7100 One Hundred. Pasadena, California, 91109. If you listen in Canada, Box 25325, London, Ontario, N6C 6B1 is your address. I'm Steve Schwetz, and I'll see you next time for Dr. McGee's Sunday sermon from Romans 7 and 8, The Struggle of a Saved Soul. Until then, may God bless and keep you as you watch and wait for His appearing in the clouds. Jesus Join us each weekday for our five-year daily study through the whole Word of God. Check for times on this station or look for Through the Bible in your favorite podcast store and always at ttb.org.